few books that I've read uh, this year um, in preparation for this message. And so I want to just kind of throw some of these out with the uh, weightiness and uh, a lot of the conversation we're going to have today. I want you to see that I'm not coming to this because I read somebody's blog and uh, got my theology off of TikTok. So um, <laughs> just so you know. A couple books that I want you to, uh, to see if you're wondering where he's reading some of these things from and they're grabbing hold of stuff. So the first one... Um, that I grabbed a hold of and devoured this one. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? If there's a book that you're gonna grab a hold of, get this book. Um, this is a fantastic book. This is a scholarly book. Lots of scripture, lots of deep dive, lots of Greek, lots of Hebrew, well studied. Um, so I wanna encourage you to grab that book if you're trying to dig into some of the subject matter, which I hope you, I hope you will. Uh, next book that I read is called This Washed and Waiting, uh, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. I'm gonna read a portion from this book today at the end of the message. Um, so you can grab a hold of that. Next book, so you guys know, Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. This is another one. This is deep content, uh, big content, uh, mature content. So I want you to uh, understand that uh, I'm reading through these things. I'm studying. I'm not blind nor oblivious to what's happening in the world around us. So if you're looking for some books to read, next one. This is a massive one, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. This is about a 420-page book. Um, it took me a good portion of four months this year to get through this book. Fascinating book. Uh, historical, philosophical, um, and speaking to a lot of the cultural issues that we are facing right now. So if you are into deep reads, that is your book right there. Next one. Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. This book was fascinating, absolutely amazing, tackles everything from uh, racism to slavery to women in ministry to homosexuality, sexual immorality, what the Bible has to say, once again, very scholarly. Um, and so uh, these are some of the recommendations that I'm making. Here's the next one. This was in 1985, so excuse the cover. Um, <laughs> right? I think the person who wrote it had a perm, um, so... <laughs> um, so, uh, Christians in the Wake of the Sexual Revolution, Rediscovering Our sexual, uh, sexual Sanity. This book covers the gamut on things. It's not just specific to one issue, it's to a bunch of issues. And uh, with any of these books, hopefully you're mature enough to be able to read them, spit on, uh, like chew on the meat, spit out the bones type of deal. Um, but this, uh, this has a lot of conversation that, that is necessary, so that, that's one to grab a hold of. Next one, <laughs> there's a lot of them. Um, Homosexuality, the Bible, and the Church. This is a very interesting book because this is a book that if you want to really go like, okay, both sides, this gives you um, that type of writing. It's, it's, a, it's a discourse on both sides of the argument, which I'm going to talk about today. I hate the term argument, but conversation. All right, next one. Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Perry. Fantastic book. Um, apparently, you can't find it at the library, but you can get it on Amazon with your money. Um, so this is, this is a more of an uh, experience-oriented book with great teaching. Jackie Hill Perry is a phenomenal teacher, um, insanely in-depth, and uh, I, would, I would call her schol scholarly as well. This next one's my least favorite book that I read. I wanted to throw it at the wall. The End of... Sexual identity, why sex is too important to define who we are. This was done by an anthropologist, so it has a very different slant to its conversation, all right? So not by, uh, not by a theologian, not by a psychologist, not by a counselor, but an anthropologist. So she's going to study from the perspective of, of um, let's just call it uh, 
sexuality within culture. And what does that look like across the gamut? Not just in Western America, but if you were to go visit a tribe in Africa, okay? Which is part of the conversation is necessary, but this book can get um, pretty heady and go some weird places. Um, but uh, like I said, I want you to see that I'm covering the gamut in my study. I don't just, I don't just read things that agree with me, Okay. Um, so that's a great book. This was another one, very exper- uh, more experience-oriented, ori- Messy Grace, Caleb uh, Kaltenbach, I think is how you say his name, um, How a Pastor with Gay Parents Learned to Love Others Without Sacrificing Conviction. Um, so this is a, a, a great book. He's going to speak more of the feelings-oriented side of things, how do we love people, so on and so forth, and then deal with the topic I'm going to deal with today. And then one more, it didn't I didn't put it up here, but I just got done with this this last week. God's Design and Why It Matters, Rethinking Sexuality, Dr. Julie Slattery. This is a great book as well. So all of these books I read this year. Um, The 1985 book I actually have read multiple times. Um, But uh, these are all great resources if you're looking for something to kind of come on the backside of this message today. Good? Everybody breathe. (laughs) Jason, breathe. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 is where we're going to begin today. We're going to begin, um, as we break into this first piece of scripture, I'm going, to, I'm going to break it apart for us, and I'm going to uh, speak to some qualifiers. I'm going to teach very different today so that I don't miss anything and so that I can speak to the uh, massive degrees of nuance that, that's in this particular subject. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, and then we'll continue on. It says this, Paul writing to Timothy, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine, or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction, this is I want you to hear uh, uh, Paul's heart. Listen to what he says. Now the goal of our instruction is, to, is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Today's message is probably going to be one of the most forward and direct messages of this series. We're gonna be dealing with subject matter today that is loaded with opportunity for misunderstanding, offense, and confusion. My goal today is to try and wade through all of that in order to bring clarity, love, and truth. My express desire in dealing with sex, sexual immorality, and sexuality is to be a pastor who is biblically faithful, pastorally sensitive, and culturally conversant. There was a day that I thought I would not have to take this, tackle this in the pulpit because I believe that this was a conversation more for one-on-one dialogue. However, as a communicator of the gospel and a teacher of the Bible, and as the pastor of this church, this cultural moment no longer affords me the ability to steer away from a message and messages regarding the subject of sex and sexuality. My aim today is to handle all of this with a love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith, as Paul would write to Timothy. With that being said, I want to also take some time to clear up some terminology that I will use in order to, to have clarity and understanding. Two words that you will frequently hear me use are the terms orthodox and historic. These will be used interchangeably, and the term revisionist and progressive as well to be used interchangeably. I use the terms orthodox and historic to describe a traditional and historic view on sex and sexuality as the Bible describes it and has agreed upon it as a theological and doctrinal basis for the better part of 2,000 years. I use the terms revisionist and progressive to describe those who have and are diverging from 
that which has been accepted as doctrine and theological truth concerning sex and sexuality. I do not use those terms flippantly, nor to be derogatory. I simply use them as the now widely accepted academic definition for such divergence. These terms are not meant to be seen as political in any way, shape, or form, regardless of the fact that these terms have been and are currently being used in the political arena. I want you to hear this right now. Everybody listen to me. This conversation is in no way a political conversation. This is a Bible conversation. The other term that I'll be using today is the term homosexuality. This will be the general blanket term that I use for those with same-sex attraction, as well as the varying degrees of identification currently being represented by the LGBTQ acronym. Please know this, that I am very aware of the nuances of identification and the very particular issues that are represented within each of the identifying realities. Once again, this is my attempt to succinctly work through a lot of content And in no way am I trying to demean or minimize a particular way someone might be identifying themselves. From a communication standpoint, LGBTQ is a chunky term that is easily tripped over as an order. Can we all be all right with that? Lastly, today's message is in no way meant to shame anyone. Rather, today is a day that I pray comes with great freedom, hope, and transformation. I know that some of the things that are said and brought up today are going to bring up memories, feelings, insecurity, fear, and guilt. It will bring up confusion, frustration, and a lot of other things that I can't necessarily put words to you you personally. I hope that we can come to the conclusion, no matter where you're at today, that the well is a place where we can have these types of conversations and that this is a safe and healthy place to process through these things. So it's with all that being said that I humbly respectfully and with great fear and trembling approach the scriptures today. So let us continue. First Timothy chapter one, verses six through 11. It says this, some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They wanna be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are assisting on. But we know that the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinful for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which is entrusted to me. Today as we continue and conclude our series, Defense Against the Dark Arts, I wanna speak to you from the subject The trifecta of temptation part three is we deal with the third and final temptation, and that is the issue of sex and sexuality. Will you pray with me just one more time today? Heavenly Father, we stand sober-minded as we address this issue today and the issues surrounding God, right now, where there is already stuff starting to creep up, Father, I pray that your grace would flood this room right now. God, I ask that you would use my words to bring hope, life, and freedom today. We know that where your presence is, there is freedom, and who the sun sets free is free indeed. And so, God, we declare this to be your house today. We have sanctuary here. Speak to us right now. Our, our ears are open. 
our minds are ready and our hearts are soft. Would you bring your word to life today in Jesus' mighty name? And everybody said, Amen. Um, I remember where I saw porn for the first time as a kid. I remember where I was at. I remember the smell of the woods, the light of the day. I can feel, if I, if I step back, I can still feel the breeze of that afternoon. Four boys wandering in the woods. I don't know if we set out that day to engage in what we were going to engage in. I don't know if we set out that day to see. I know, I, I know from personal standpoint, I didn't set out that day to see what I saw that day. That was the day innocence was taken. I can still remember the details if I'm honest. It was the day that I was introduced to something that at the moment I didn't realize was gonna have so much power in my life. And I didn't realize it had the power that it did in everyone else's life as well. I wouldn't, what I, I wouldn't call what I, what I saw that day sin in that moment because it was a moment that innocence was being taken away. The motive wasn't there. It was kind of just four boys exploring and trying to look at what this particular kid's dad had in his garage. But it changed me. Changed the way that I saw things. It changed the way that I thought about things. Changed the way that I felt about things. We like to think that the issue of sex and sexuality is like everything that we face in life and in faith, but the truth is, is that it's not. Well, from a sin perspective, it carries the same weight and classification as everything else that is designated by God as outside of his will and purpose for our lives. The Bible also tells us that it has very different power and therefore implications upon our lives. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through to 20. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. This is an issue that we all deal with. While there are varying degrees and details as to what that looks like in each of our lives, the issue of sex and sexuality is up front and center in each of our lives. This is why the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, deals with it so squarely. None of us are off the hook. Come on. None of us are off the hook. And what I hope that we don't do in a message like this is, is, is start thinking to ourselves, well, I don't deal with that. So it can't be, can't be that, but no, no, we, we deal with it. It doesn't matter what that is, we all deal with it. So let's make a few introductions, if you will, today. I want to introduce you to two characters that we need to interact with, and that the first character is this is going to come up on the screen. This is our first Greek word, uh, arsenokotite, okay? You may not be able to read that very well. Um, this is a two-part word consisting of arsen, A-R-S-E-N, meaning man, and kohite, meaning bed, literally meaning betters of men. This is an important word for us today because when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, it is, very, it is a very clear and precise word. This helps us navigate the validity and impact of the Bible's prohibition against all acts of homosexuality. 
From the revisionist and progressive standpoint, such prohibitions are, are interpreted as, as invalid because the term homosexuality, English, was not a valid word in that cultural moment in time. As well, revisionist and progressive commentators would suggest that where the issue of homosexuality is brought up scripturally, it is when the, within the framework of non-consenting behavior. In other words, the homosexual activity that the Bible is speaking of is behavior that is unwanted, and one of the parties involved is having something perpetrated against them. That would be the interpretation from a, from a revisionist or progressive standpoint. Therefore, making the injunction against homosexuality null and void. The implications of this idea are vast in nature, but really focus around the idea of affirming homosexual activity within the confines of a loving and committed relationship between two people of the same sex. While I will make the concession that the term homosexual, homosexual, the, the English term, is a term that was not yet employed and has been since added to the translation of the Bible into English, the word that is used to describe its nature and subsequent prohibition is found within Scripture, and it means what it means. So let's look at a few other instances. Here's what the relevant texts look like in the um, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament used by the Jews in the first century. Look at this, Leviticus 18, 22 through 23, it says this, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, and you shall not lie with any animal and make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Verse 22, if it comes up, you can see how the words are used here. Meta, arsenos, coitin, literally meaning betters of men. So it's the same words we're seeing in the Old Testament that's being used in, in the New Testament. Okay, Leviticus 20, verse 13, here's another one. It says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. We're gonna pull those, the next words up here. It is again, arsonist, coitin. So what we see in 1 Timothy, amongst other moments within scripture, are these words being used. So while you do not have the term homosexuality being used from an English term, we have the Greek, therefore the nature, and the Hebrew, therefore the nature and consistency of it and the prohibition of it across all scripture. As Paul the Apostle articulates his thoughts and truths concerning the specific teaching on sexual ethic, we must see and understand that he is not mincing words and that there is a clear teaching from a biblical perspective on the issues of homosexuality. I'm gonna pause here for a second. For many of us in this room, I need you to just, just stay with me the entire message, okay? Because I know what's going on right now. I know about the whatabouts and, and I know about the people we're thinking about and the friends and the family and the coworker. I, I understand all that. So will you, will you just agree to stay with me to the end? I wanna introduce you to another word. You're gonna see me go back and forth between sexual immorality and homosexuality and here's the reason. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to belabor a specific issue, homosexuality specifically, but what I am trying to deal with is a term and a reality that has, that's trying to be grafted into doctrine and theology very specifically. We have an agreement in totality that adultery isn't appropriate by way of the Bible, Right? But there's this other thing that's going on right now that, that from a cultural push, we're trying, so I have to deal with that specifically so that we can see it. Y'all with me still? Yeah. So the next word is the word pornea. 
This is to commit fornication or any sexual sin. It's a broad, it's big umbrella. Fornication, lewdness, or any sexual sin. This is what it is in the Greek. Any sexual sin is a very broad injunction that we must remember that the general sexual ethic presented to us within Scripture is pretty specific and therefore addresses the broadness of this Greek word. Pornea, from the way that we engage physically pre-marriage to what takes place within marriage, there is an ethic associated with our sexual lives. We can invent all kinds of things and justify them however we want to, but the Bible is pretty clear as to what sin in the area of sex and sexuality outside and inside the confines of marriage is. Now, what we must understand is that while we are just scratching the surface with our understanding of these words, what they are presenting to us is a truth that is to be assimilated into each of our lives. And that truth is this. The Bible is very clear as to the lived expression and sexual ethic of our lives as believers. And yet even with strong words such as these, there is still a hard push for individual expressiveness and deviation from orthodox sexual ethic. You can go to Google, and in an instant, you'll be met with countless personal blogs and papers written to try to affirm positions that simply are not affirmed in Scripture. We can try and say that the words are wrong. Paul was biased, and the transliteration of the Bible is outdated and incorrect in in light of social progression, but once again, we'd be arguing from a weak and uninformed and albeit arrogant position. I want to say this, that not everything is old is outdated. Let me say that one more time. Everything that is old is outdated. You notice how everybody's starting to listen to Led Zeppelin again? (laughs) Right? Bringing back bell bottoms again. We're dressing like we're in the 80s again. Thank you for laughing. That was a great tension breaker. (laughs) Writer Kevin DeYoung puts it like this. The English translations, here's a quote from that book I was was mentioning, the, the first one, Homosexuality, what the Bible says about it. The English translations, this is, how, this is how pointed he is. The English translations are almost always right, especially when they basically say the same thing. Speaking in reference to the words that we've just gone over, he then says of different translations of the Bible, he's, gonna, he's not gonna name nine of them, so he's just gonna use this term, these nine, okay? Listen to what he writes. This is a quote from that book. Think about it. Each of the nine translations listed above, he's showing nine translations of the Bible, was put together by a team of scholars with expertise in biblical scholarship and the original languages. That doesn't mean that we can't make mistakes or that we can't learn new things that they missed, but it does mean that after reading a few commentaries and, per, and uh, perusing a couple articles online, you will certainly not know the ancient world of Koine Greek better than they did. If translators thought a specific word really meant X, as seminary students and bloggers are apt to say, they wouldn't have translated it Y. Our English translations, imperfect though they may be, are faithful and reliable translations of the original languages. They do not need decoding. In other words, propping up conspiracy theories and unfettered biases in order to minimize what the Bible says about our sexual ethic is not just short-sighted, but it's intellectually dishonest. That's my quote. And that's where a lot of this conversation has come from. I read, I saw something the other day on TikTok. Can I just tell you right now, if you email me or request a meeting with me and your leading statement is I saw this on TikTok, the conversation is over, okay? (laughs) 
I'm not trying to be mean. But while you were on TikTok, I was reading 10 books. And it took me a lot longer than a minute and 30 seconds. While there are ways that we have to work through biblical content and take into consideration context, culture, and audience, which we're going to talk this week, we're gonna, our, our message, our two-hour message is going to drop tomorrow on women in ministry and leadership. That's important, so you can guys go take a look at that. We're going to talk about context and culture and, and, and audience. Where there is universal agreement on an issue across the entirety of the Bible, there is not much more to say about it. This is why Paul would instruct Timothy and Titus to stay strong and intentional on the preaching and teaching of the word, to not steer away from the truth that is aligned with what he would define as sound doctrine. Y'all still with me today? Furthermore, I want to read a quote by a man. This is, this is, this is kind of just rounded all out, this portion of the message today, by a man named Luke Timothy Johnson, a well-respected, every shot respected, New Testament scholar who supports homosexual behavior and has a revisionist and progressive view on sexual ethic. I read this because I appreciate his honesty and his candor on this issue. Listen to what he says, and this is a quote. He says, I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority, he goes on to write. We, pe- we appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way that God has created us. The progressive or liberal theology, this is it in its rawest form. And this is not new, as Paul would write about this in, in the letter to the Romans, a city that, much like today, was on the front side of, pro- of a progressive movement in science, arts, philosophy, and, and hedonistic anarchy. I read a lot from my notes today because I do not want to mince my words. Are you, are you okay with that? This is a different type of teaching. I'm being very calculated. I have a lot, of, a lot of work in here, and so I don't want to go off script lest I say something impassioned, Okay. Someone's like, then what is this right now? (laughs) This is tame. (laughs) Romans chapter one. (laughs) Listen to what Paul writes to the Romans. Romans chapter one, 18 through to 25. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, uh uh-oh. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in their desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. There's that first one. So that their bodies were degraded amongst themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. 
Is the Bible coming alive in a different way? We can glance over these scriptures many times and, and not see them for the language that it is, but it's a strong truth. Rejection of orthodoxy and scriptural truth is the only way to work around the ethic and design that is given to us in and through the counsel of scripture. In other words, meaning that if we want to say that God allows the things that we, sexual immorality, homosexuality, any deviation in, in, in between, we have to go around scripture in order to do that. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. We have to go around it. There's no way through it, because if we try to go through it, you're going to hit a wall. The wall is the words. The wall is his word. The wall is that which he breathes life into. And so because of this reality, there's three rejections that all of us make at one point or another when we're dealing with sexual immorality and sexual ethic. The first rejection is this. We just found it in Romans. It's the glory of God for an idol. If you wondered what that idol is, it's ourselves. Come on, somebody, we worship ourselves. We all do it in one way or another. But how many of you would agree with me? We're a pretty self-focused generation. Here's the second one. Here's the second rejection that we make. The truth of God for a lie. We talked about this in week one. Did God really say And so this would be that which is counter to sound doctrine. The reason that many of us struggle with this reality is this truth right here. We currently have a low view of the Bible. I'm just gonna say it like like carte blanche. When it comes down to a lot of these issues that we're facing right now in our generation, the reason that we have to, we go to all of these other places is because we, we technically have a low view of the Bible. So my job right now as your pastor is to try to prop the Bible back up and help you see that it is an authority like Pastor Dave talked about, that it's his word. And now let me divide the room now. I don't mean to do this for any other reason except for us to understand this. If you are in the room today and you would say, Jason, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm not a Christ follower. Someone tricked me into showing up to church today. I'm so glad that you're here. And here's what I wanna say to you. None of this that I'm speaking to you today matters. This is not a conversation for you. I want to have a conversation with you about Jesus. Do you see the divide I'm about to make? I want to have a conversation with you about Jesus. Jesus wants you just as you are, right where you are at. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter the proclivities that you have and the things that are going on. He wants you. So I don't want, I, I, you can just ignore the rest of this conversation and just stare weirdly at me the rest of the time. <laughs> but then there's another group of people in the room. And those would be those of us who call ourselves Christ followers in here. Okay? And here's what I need you to understand today. As Christ followers, we do not have the ability to change this. We have two options, reject it or submit to it. So to those of you in the room today who are kicking the tires on faith and trying to figure out things, I'm so glad you're here. I love you. Stay around for a while. I promise you next week we're going into joyful. (laughs) But for those of you who are Christ followers, you call this place home, I'm being your pastor today. And I'm letting you understand and know where we stand as a church. And that's big C, not just little C. 
This is not something that I'm just geeked up about right now. I'm trying to bring clarity in this area so that we have the ability to talk about these things openly. Is that helping everybody? Here's the second, or the third, the, the third rejection is natural design for unnatural desire. That which is contrary to God's plan and intent. These are going to start, this message today is going to start conversations. It's not going to finalize conversations. So please write your questions down. You can send them to Dave at the wellslc.com. <laughs> Writer and author, Dr. Julie Slattery, out of this book right here, she puts it like this. It's such a poignant quote. She says, pride is at the center of both our rejection of God's holy standard and our judgmental application of that truth. So when we reject the standard for our own personal lives, pride. And when we, with bitterness and frustration and condemnation, level things against other people, pride. What's happening right now in our world, so now I'm gonna go a little off script. What's what's happening... In our world right now is, is these two polar opposite views. And so what we have is complete anarchy over here. Do whatever I want with my body. Do whatever I want with, with who I am. As long as I'm not hurting anybody and as long as there's consent. So right over here we have that, that application going on. And then, so let, let's call it celebration, okay? And then on this end over here where the church is kind of traditionally occupied space, we have condemnation. Celebration condemnation, I want to offer us a third way that I actually think is more biblically appropriate. Compassion. But don't put it on the same paradigm, put it someplace else. Because it's not a sliding mechanism in here. So compassion, whoa, there's a little bit of celebration and a little bit of condemnation. No, no, no. Compassion exists in its own space. That's the way of Jesus. We'll get there in a moment. So this brings us to the fork in the road on these issues, sexual morality and homosexuality. If we can't affirm them biblically, then we have to shift to another power source, and that would be emotion and experience. This is the shift that is necessary in order to make these issues about justice, fairness, and freedom. Emotion is now the most popular weapon of the enemy when it comes to our current culture and society. My truth has become the war cry of a generation that has all but lost its way. Most of us have become the casualties of a culture war that has been raging for the better part of 60 years, and you didn't know it. I mean, it's been raging since the beginning of the time, but in force for the better part of 60 years. Mary... Eberstadt, writer and author of the book Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, writes this. The sexual revolution was the destigmatization and the demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. So here we see the reduction of the beauty and purpose connected to a God-authored and commissioned sexual ethic. This is the platforming of sexual experimentation, personal preference, and and general boundlessness as long as there's consent and no one is being harmed. Do you wanna know what we're gonna have to wrestle with over the coming years and generations? 
Robotics? It's already out. We're already talking about it. I kid you not, in pastoral circles, how are we going to bring the Bible to an issue of when it comes to sex with robots? It sounds wild, but we're there, guys. Virtual reality? What is the sexual ethic around these situations and circumstances? Like, do you guys remember back in the day, for those of us like pre-internet? You guys remember that? Like, I'm not trying to be, like, I'm, I, like we're dealing with this with our kids. I, I have no mind for this stuff. Like, in order to get pornography, you had to, like, go to AM, PM and either steal it or get somebody to buy it from, for you. Now we're talking about virtual reality. So to say, oh, well, it's just the same and have the same cliche and blanket statements that the church has always had, not appropriate. We have to deal with these issues with intellectual honesty. In their book, After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s, writers and authors Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen write this powerfully clear and pointed summation. Listen to this. First, you get your foot in the door by being as similar as possible. Then and only then, when your one little difference, orientation, is finally accepted, can you start dragging in your other peculiarities one by one. You hammer in the wedge, narrow end first. As the saying goes, allow the camel's nose beneath your tent and his whole body will soon follow. That's the progressive sexual ethic in the world right now. This is important for us to understand and recognize because as Christ followers, I want you to hear this statement now, we have to clearly define and understand our role and place within this culture war. I do not believe that we have been called to fight in a culture war although there would be many who would disagree with me on that. I believe that we have a very unique and purposeful role within this war. Let me illustrate it this way. On April 1st, 1945, the Battle of Okinawa began, which would be the beginning of an 83-day battle that would claim the lives of over 82,000 people. During these 83 days, there would be an 11-day standoff that would ultimately gain notoriety and become known as the Battle of Hacksaw Ridge. The battle would be like any other in the 83-day siege at Okinawa because of one man by the name of Desmond Dawes. Desmond Dawes was, a, was awarded the Purple Heart by President Harry Truman for his heroic rescue of over 75 soldiers while remaining unarmed and have never carried a weapon in battle. You see, in 1940, a U.S. law allowed con- conscientious objectors to serve the war effort in non-combatant positions. Desmond would become a medic, but not without severe backlash and abuse from his fellow servicemen. I'm going somewhere, so just follow me, okay? Listen to this quote from a recent documentary. The army made Doss's life hell during training. It started out as harassment, and then it became abusive, Benedict says. He interviewed several World War II veterans who were in Doss's battalion. They considered him a pest, questioned his sincerity, and threw shoes at him while he prayed. They saw him as a slacker, someone who shouldn't have been allowed in the army and someone who was their weakest link in the chain. Their opinion of Doss would eventually change as literally their lives would be saved by him. Listen to the excerpt, expert, or excerpt from an article written about Doss and his extraordinary feat. Listen to this. Under a barrage of gunfire and explosions, Doss crawled on the ground from wounded soldier to wounded soldier. 
They dragged severely injured men to the edge of the ridge, tied a rope around their bodies, and lowered them down to other medics below. In Benedict's documentary, Doss said, I was praying the whole time. I just kept on praying, Lord, please help me get one more. I tell that story because there's a very important truth we need to understand. You see, Doss was in the war, but not of the war. He would see the bullets fly and the blood be spilt. He would see the pain and the heartache. He would see the men that had stepped onto that battlefield lose their lives and would watch families and futures alter because of it. Yet he would never pick up a weapon. He was there to rescue. His mission was clear and his purpose was resolute. As Christ's followers, our job is to be in the war but not of the war. I'm gonna say that one more time because it's a play on words. Our job as Christ followers is to be in the war but not of the war. The weapons that we fight with are not carnal weapons. They are not our words and our fingertips on Facebook. They are weapons, spiritual weapons that Ephesians talks about. Our job is to be in the war but not of the war, to rescue and to heal, to love and to save. And too often when it comes to this subject matter, there are more Christians fighting with fists rather than serving with their hands. And in an even greater indictment, many of us are all but ignoring the very thing that the Bible teaches in order to continue to engage with the things that are private in our lives and should be surrendered as we beat down others with condemnation and judgment. We yell at the person dealing with same-sex attraction while we sit in secret and look at pornography. We have disdain on our face for the transgender person as we're cheating on our spouse. The reason the world stopped listening to the church is because our house is out of order. Writer and author Philip Yancey put it ever so directly as he writes this, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not as its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, denominations issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when the priests and ministers failed to practice what they preach. Those are heavy words. I don't want to be a part of a church, nor do I want to pastor a church that shouts loud about things that we're against when we refuse to do it ourselves. We refuse to be dogmatic about this area of our lives. Why are you talking about sexuality and homosexuality and all these other issues today? Why can't, why, why can't you give the same strength to a bunch of other issues? Well, I would argue that the same strength isn't necessary and needed. We're all good with don't murder. Yeah. <laughs> hey, mom, 
Not once in my, in my 16 years of pastoring has anybody ever come to me and said, hey, Jason, I need to have a conversation with you about this murder thing. I think the, I think the words are wrong. I don't think that was God's intent. But isn't it interesting how we pick and choose things in this word? So here's what I want to do with the remaining time together. Y'all still with me? Okay. I need to transition with all that in mind and offer us a way forward. I want to introduce us to one more word today. Probably the most important word we can focus on in this conversation. It's a word that would be used by Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 18.30, it's a word that John the Baptist would use in Matthew 3, verse 2. It's a word that Jesus would use in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Peter would use it in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and Paul would call all people to it in Acts 17, verse 30. It's the word metanoia, or repent. Change of mind. Repentance. In the New Testament, this is a quote, primarily refers to a comprehensive change of one's orientation toward following God. I repent, change one's mind. And the New Testament generally refers not to simply changing one's mind, but in turning back to God. Repentance is both spiritual and practical, and it is a truth that seems to have all but been lost in our churches and discipleship. It would be the idea, this idea that's being presented to the Corinthians as Paul would write 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through to 20, lengthy piece of scripture. It says this, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a list for you. That's why. Now, now Now he levels it down and he levels the playing field. And then watch what he says in verse 11. And some of you used to be like this. The operative word, used, everybody shout used. Used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul writes about the spiritual reality of repentance and he goes on to write about the practical implications of it. He says, everything is permissible for me. We talked about this in another series. There's quotation marks around it because this was the argument of the world, of the society around them, of the culture around them. Everything is permissible for me. And then he says, but not everything's beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that, you are, that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take, uh, take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Do you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. You are not your own. You don't own you. Remember, Christ followers. 
If I'm subjecting myself to the authority and lordship of Jesus, I am no longer my own. Devon is not his. Dave is not his. Sarah is not hers. Kaisa is not I am not mine. I do not belong to me. I do not have autonomous authority over this thing, but rather in the hands of a good God, I now say, God, use this. I am a living sacrifice unto you. Too often we settle for what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. The German theologian and martyr would give his famed and impassioned summation of repentantless faith, listen to this, defined by him as cheap grace. Listen to what he writes. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything they say and so everything can remain as it was before. All for sin could not alone. Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself of the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In other words, cheap grace is grease that makes me feel good. And our churches have too long been built upon it. Y'all with me still? Metanoia. It's what we're called to, to change, to transform, to become. These are not easy paths, but we were never told that they were going to be. In fact, we were told quite the opposite. It's not easy to walk away from an illicit relationship that is built upon passion and lust. It's not easy to work through the pain that caused the addiction to porn or to deal with the patterns that have led to finding oneself trapped by it. And please know, like, as, I, as I point these things out, it's not because I'm bent on those things and dealing with those things. It's just the easiest to speak to instead of giving a detailed list on any deviation that we can make. I will never know the frustration that is involved working through same-sex attraction and not being with someone that you're drawn to. I will never know the deep pain of being in a body that does not feel like your own and wishing you were with someone else or you were someone else. None of us will know that. Some of us will. These are complex issues with complex paths. These are not things that are overcome with simple willpower and cliche statements like just be straight. Stop it. Just stop looking. Just stop doing. You ever notice just stop doesn't work? I wish, like I look at a pack of Oreos. <laughs> Just stop. Just one more. I try to break the tension with it, but it's the reality because that's been the, that, that's been the argument of the church. Just simple behavior modification. Instead of giving people the dignity and the ability and the space to process through why it is that they're working through what it is that they're working through. We can't carte blanche get into people's minds and hearts with a simple statement of just stop. 
It doesn't work. You don't tell a heroin addict to just stop. Why wouldn't we give someone else the same compassion? And that is why I have to work through such a long message and work through all these things so I, can stay, so I can say statements that you don't step back and go, well, then I wonder where he stands on the issue. I've been very clear as to where we stand. But compassion doesn't negate conviction. That wasn't in my notes. That was actually really good. So someone write that down and let me know that I need to say that in the next service. To be a gospel-centered community is to be a place that walks through these and many other issues, helping to see all of our lives engage in greater degrees of freedom daily. This message does not solve, nor does it speak to all the whatabouts we could be possibly coming up with right now in our minds. I want to say this is the beginning of a conversation. But I do want to offer some closing truths, finally. (laughs) I told you it was going to be a long one today. I want to offer some closing truths to consider as we work to create a path forward that offers us all ways to grapple with the issue of sex and sexual immorality. These truths are offered to us in and through metanoia. Here's the first one, if you're taking notes today. We have to allow repentance to change our minds concerning ourself. This is for all of us. We have to allow repentance to change our minds concerning ourselves. See, it'd be easy for us to say, well, at least I don't have that problem. Be easy to minimize what we have issue with in light of something that we deem to be more major. However, the truth is that at the core of all of these issues and many other ones is one common denominator, our self, our flesh, the thing inside of us that makes us the center of our own universe. True biblical and Christ-centered repentance will cause us to have a reformation in the way that we see ourselves. Now, I want to try to preach Bonhoeffer's closing statements on the cheap grace issue. Listen to what he says as he continues in his thoughts about cheap grace by helping us understand costly grace and how it impacts ourselves. This is Bonhoeffer, and he says, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods for. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciples leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. One of the greatest objections that is brought up to any of the topics we've addressed today is it's simply not fair. It's my body, my feelings, my heart. I should be able to do what I want, when I want, how I want. 
And you would be right if your ideological outlook on life is simply about the flourishing of it. That would be in, in alignment with the age of the therapeutic and self-authority. However if, you, however, if you adhere to a historical, orthodox worldview on sexual ethic, then we would realize that self is not our authority, no matter how we are born and no matter how our pro, um, proclivity towards any one thing, the Bible is clear, we must be born again. And we haven't talked about that in a long time. This is the explicit theme communicated by Jesus in John chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, and supported in through New Testament teaching, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You and I must be born again. Number two, we have to allow repentance to change our minds concerning sin. I hope that in our time together today, we've come to the conclusion that the Bible is pretty clear when it comes to the issue of sin especially where sex and sexuality is concerned. The truth is, is that we may not like it, but it's there. If you're writing notes, I would like you to write this down today. Sin is not a fire to be played with. It is a sickness that Jesus died for. <clears throat> Sin is not a fire to be played with. It is a sickness that Jesus died for. Someone said it like this, where there are light and erroneous views of sin, there will be light and erroneous views of the cross. The truth is, is that God's view on sin was such that the only acceptable antidote was the brutality of the cross to be suffered in and through his one and only son, Jesus. Think about that. When we treat sin lightly, we treat Jesus lightly. Sin was a force so great that it could only be met with by the full force of God's love. So next time you hear the statement, God is love, I would agree with you. But we may disagree on what we're talking about when it comes to love. God is love, but the force of that love was brutality upon a cross, right. not for the allowance of something. Right. Number three, last one. We have to allow repentance to change our minds concerning God. We have to allow repentance to change our minds concerning God. A.W. Tozer said this, when the truth has been revealed in the word of God, listen to these words, church. When the truth has been revealed in the word of God, our business is to find out what that truth is and in all of our teaching conform to that truth. We're not to edit it or change it, but to let it stand just as it is. He goes on to write this, men are not willing to let God be what he says that he is, they attempt to change, correct, alter, and apologize for God in an attempt to make him be other than what he is. God is, and we had better accept him as he is. You see, we have to allow repentance to transform our understanding and view of God. He has to become more than a cosmic taskmaster that has an affinity at making our lives miserable by stripping us all of what we feel is good and acceptable in life. He has to become more than a parental control seeking to keep us from seeing and experience all that life has to offer. For too long, God has gotten a bad rap because he put boundaries of love in our lives. 
We must begin to see God for who he is, a loving and redemptive savior who created the best for us. Desires that we would partake of his love and goodness and in and through a submitted and engaged relationship find life in him. This love has different applications in each of our life, but it will lead us to the same place no matter who you are today. Repentance will always lead us to the same place. It is not better than somebody. It is not worse than somebody. The only place repentance will equally lead all of us to, no matter your background, your proclivity, your sin, your dysfunction, your skin color, your socioeconomic background, your age, your stage in life, this thing called repentance will lead us to one place, and that is the foot of the cross. So I leave you with this thought. Washington Waiting, page 202. This book specifically is dealing with the issue of homosexuality, but I want you to, to now in this moment connect application to all sexual issues that we've been talking about. What will it take for gay and lesbian Christians, those engaged in sexual immorality, to live lives over the long term that are marked by the grace of chastity, hope, and devout service to others? If it is true that many sex-attracted Christians will find themselves living as single people with ongoing same-sex attraction, what kinds of support and care are they in need of for those lives to be practical over the course of decades. And not just practical, but joyful, marked by deep involvement in church life and devoted service to others. In the first place, there, our choice of celibacy, as a single person in here, you've engaged in that or are engaging in that. So again, it's not just this issue. Must not be viewed as a kind of halfway house between full healing, understood as the reversal of our homosexual orientation where people have propagated that, the the full mark of God's sanctity and grace in your life is that somehow you become straight. I actually don't see that. There's sure experiences where God's done something in somebody and I've got friends, we have dear friends, friends long past, but there's so much more nuance to this. I heard a quote once that says that the removal of nuance is tyranny. There's nuance in all these conversations. In the first place there, our choice of celibacy must not be viewed as a kind of halfway house between full healing, understood as the reversal of our homosexual orientation, and a sub or non-Christian life of self-indulgence. On the contrary, our celibacy must be dignified and heralded as our participation in a venerable vocation that has ancient spiritual, patristic, and indeed evangelical roots. Likewise, the discipline entailed by our choice of celibacy must be explored with acute attention and care. We gay believers must not simply be told to be celibate without also being offered psychological, moral, and spiritual direction based on the knowledge of the truest findings of psychological research as well on the rich reflections of the ascetic and spiritual traditions of Christian history. And finally, we must be encouraged to view our particular existence as the washed and waiting, the same sex attracted and celibate, not simply as a life of deprivation, but a life that is directed towards community, friendship, and hospitality, in short, directed towards love. In these ways, please God, in 30, 40, or 50 years, we gay and lesbian believers who are washed in the waters of baptism and waiting for the resurrection of the dead will be those who are washed and still waiting, still persevering in the hope of eternal life. I read that section of scripture to you 
and then say this to the general broad scope of sexual immorality. This and everything that we've talked about today is about submission unto God. Open conversations, biblical faithfulness, heart and pure motive to be able to have engaged conversations where we can talk through these things and deal with the very complex issues that we face in them. If you're in here today and you are dealing with same-sex attraction, I wanna say this on behalf of our church, we love you and I'm so glad you're here today. If you're dealing with transgender issues, I wanna say this, I love you, our church loves you and I'm so glad you're here today. If you're struggling with pornography, I want you to know that you are loved and I'm so glad that you're here today. If you are engaged in an extramarital affair right now and your other partner doesn't know about it, I want you to know that you are loved and I'm so glad that you are here today. If you just been living the club life and sleeping with anything and everything that you possibly can, I love you and I want you to know I'm so glad that you are here today. If you're struggling with habitual masturbation and, and, and deviant forms of pornography, I want you to know that we love you and I am so glad that you are here today. If you are struggling going downtown and finding secret places and secret spaces to engage in something that you don't wanna tell anybody else about, I want you to know that I love you and I am so glad that you are here today. As we deal with the flesh of our lives, I want you to know that the well is a safe place. We love you and are so glad that you are here today. And I pray that our church would be a church of repentance where we are on our face before God saying, God, free me of these things, bring hope into my life, and we have a community of faith that processes these things until the great moment that Jesus comes back and takes us to the place that will be no more pain, no more weeping, no more tears. In Jesus' mighty name, come on in the church, shout it.